Hi, this is Josh. Just a quick note on today's episode. Uh, we're talking with Ben Lilliston about grass-fed beef, and we reference a USDA comment period that has already closed. Um, we didn't get the episode up in time. So just be aware of that, but otherwise enjoy the show. You're listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. But today we're talking about grass-fed beef and specifically about uh, the USDA considering a, a rule that would uh, regulate the labeling of grass-fed beef as a product of the USA. And here to talk with me about it is Ben Lilliston. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's start uh, with a paper you wrote last spring. Um, called Missing the Market, uh, in which you contend that grass-fed beef production is on the rise and the demand for grass-fed beef is also on the rise. So talk about that growth. Yeah, I mean, uh, grass-fed beef is basically doubling in sales every year. Um, You're seeing more and more uh, ranchers trying to target that specific market, grass-fed, So we've seen uh, massive growth from just around 100 grass-fed producers targeting that market in 1998 to now nearly 4,000. And the reason they're going into that is that they can get a significant premium for grass-fed beef. They can get up to a 50% premium if they're selling directly or 25% if they're selling into the sort of supply chain system. It's also a really important market for new, uh, new and beginning farmers and ranchers. And one of the things that is attractive about it is that it's not as, uh, uh, doesn't require as much upfront costs. Um, once you get your system sort of established, you, you, you don't have to pay for you know, pesticides and fertilizers and some of the other costs that are associated with uh, other types of crop production. Um, and you can grow your, your market slowly. You can do it over time and without getting into huge debt. Um, so it's a really important farmer uh, market for farmers and ranchers. Yeah, and explain just briefly what constitutes um, grass, 100% grass-fed beef, because all cows eat grass at some point in their lives. Yeah, yeah. Most most uh, conventional beef on the market. Um, will spend about uh, two-thirds of its life on grass-fed and then and then go into feedlots and be finished on uh, a grain-based feed that'll fatten them up very quickly uh, and then, you know, take them to slaughter and processing. So most, I mean, you know, the vast majority of beef out there is conventional. Grass-fed continues, uh, leaves them on pasture, um, for their lifetime or eating grass. And um, so they tend to live a little longer because it takes a little longer for them to get up to weight uh, for slaughter. Um, and they have a different kind of taste. It's a different, it's a distinctly different product. Um, one of the reasons that you're seeing this growth is because consumers are, are um, sort of health conscious and grass-fed has a lot of health benefits. It has uh you know, a better omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acid ratio, better, more antioxidants. Um, so there's a, and it's a little leaner, it can be leaner. Um, so there's different um, types of 
uh, health benefits that's also sort of driving the grass-fed product. So not only is this good for the farmer's bottom line, but grass-fed beef actually can have a really positive impact on our environment. How does that work? Yeah, well, uh, a sustainably managed grazing system, um, there's a growing body of research that shows that it helps build soil health and fertility, um, that it helps uh, water holding capacity, which is really important as we're seeing more and more extreme weather events. Um, so it holds the soil together, um, allows it to be more fertile. Um, it can increase biodiversity in the region. Um, you're not using uh, fertilizers and pesticides, which can uh, affect the ecosystem there. Um, and, and that can help, of course, biodiversity and wildlife habitat. And the, and the other thing it's really shown to is, is help with water quality. And that's a big issue in a lot of parts of the country, including the upper Midwest, is how do we take some of these row crops out of production and start looking at sustainably managed grazing that can help filtrate basically water as it runs off the land um, and hold it on the land as, as opposed to uh, uh, nutrient runoff that is causing a host of problems around the country. And then the, and then the last issue is around climate change. Um, you know, um, peren we know perennial grasses, stronger soil health is able to withstand more extreme weather events associated with climate change. There's also a growing body of evidence that uh, sustainable grazing systems can actually sequester more carbon uh, from the atmosphere and be part of the mitigation aspect of climate change as well. And um, obviously the big meat corporations, uh, JBS, Cargill, Purdue, um, want to get in on this and they've started um, taking over a big part of that market, right? Yeah, I mean, they're seeing what everyone else is seeing, that this market is rapidly growing, that consumers want it. So they're investing in grass-fed uh, supply chains and companies, um, and not just in the United States, of course. They, these are global companies. So they're, you know, present in Australia. Australia and New Zealand are some of the biggest grass-fed producers globally, uh, particularly exporting. And so a lot Part of uh, why we've been tracking this uh, most recently is that you're seeing a flood of um, grass-fed imports coming into the United States to meet this demand, and it's crowding out U.S. producers. And that kind of gets to the, the topic of your blog, which is that because the way that the supply chain works, uh, cows that are, are grown and, and beef that is uh, slaughtered in other countries is coming into the U.S., but it's still being labeled a product of the United States. Explain how that works. Yeah, this is a this is a long story, part of a long story about the meat industry really trying to prevent consumers from knowing where uh, their meat comes from. And it goes back to um, requirements for mandatory country of origin labeling. And this goes back to 2002 Farm Bill, where the USDA was um, required by Congress to set rules for country of origin labeling. Meat in, the meat industry uh, vigorously opposed that. They didn't want consumers to know that a large amount of the beef in the United States, um, a lot, many of those cows were born in another country, say Mexico or Canada, uh, may have been raised partially there or fattened up here and processed here. They didn't want that kind of 
uh, information for consumers because they felt like consumers um, and a lot of their data, a lot of the polling data shows consumers will support uh, American produced beef. And so they fought con- mandatory country origin labeling legally. They fought it in Congress. They failed time and time again, but they had success uh, challenging the U.S. rules at the World Trade Organization. And they worked with the countries of, of Canada and Mexico to bring those challenges and um, so the WTO ruled against and basically said the U.S. Uh, mandatory country of origin labeling was a violation of trade rules, was discriminatory against other countries. And so Congress, instead of standing up to the WTO and trying to figure out how do we work around this, basically backed off. And they passed uh, legislation at the end of 2015 that said, okay, we're revoking our mandatory country of origin labeling laws for meat. And that then put into place what are known as voluntary uh, labeling rules around. And so country uh, companies like a Cargill or JBS or any meat company can voluntarily label their meat. Um, but they still have to subscribe to USDA rules around that. And there's a loophole in those rules. And those rules say that um, if the, even if the animal is born in another country, raised in another country, slaughtered in another country, but the carcass is taken to the United States and processed, cut up into steaks or whatever type of cuts, it can be labeled as a product of the USA. So it's a huge loophole. And, and uh, you know, we really don't know the exact number and, and percentage of grass-fed beef that is actually produced and raised in another country, but the estimates are that it's close to 70%. Um, and so this is a loophole that has to be closed. Um, it's clear that multinational meat companies are taking advantage of it. Um, and it's really deceptive for consumers because many believe that they're buying a U.S. raised um, uh, meat product. Right. You know, it's, it's um, counterintuitive, I guess, to think of food products in general. Um, as uh, having an integrated multinational supply chain. Um, You know, when you hear the NAFTA debate around rules of origin, um, it's mostly around cars, right? Like how much components of, you know, uh, this car were uh, created in each country. But you don't think about that with animals, but it it really is kind of this industrial process for a lot of the uh, supply chain. before we get into the specific USDA rule, um, how widespread is this practice within the livestock industry? Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult to know exactly how widespread because of this loophole. There's a lot of, of blurriness. What we do know is that um, in 2014, an estimated 60% of grass-fed was U.S. Uh, was really U.S. produced. Once the mandatory cool went out and this new voluntary loophole was put, it really became the guidance for, for companies, you now see, um, you know, the estimates are that 70% of grass-fed is, is foreign produced but labeled as a product of the U.S. So we, we don't know the exact amount because companies are not required to do it. I mean, they're following the law, but they're, we would argue, uh, openly deceiving consumers who think that they're actually buying U.S. produced grass-fed. So good news is, uh, maybe good news, is that USDA is actually considering a rule that would close this loophole. 
Um, and you submitted a comment to USDA on that rule. Um, what, um, what did that say? Uh, just to point out, we all have until August uh, 17th to submit comments. And um, there's information on our website to help people give them background and have a link to submit the comments. And they don't have to be long. You don't have to write pages and pages about this. Um, I think it's just a real clear message to USDA, close this loophole. Um, and um, what this rulemaking process started when the Organization of, of Co Competitive Markets um, and the American Grass-Fed Association got together and basically petitioned, filed a legal petition to the USDA and said, you need to close this. And that sort of pressured the USDA to open this up for consideration. Um, and, you know, we basically made the case that uh, many of the points that we've made, that, that consumers are being deceived by this, that you're not complying with the law, that consumer labeling has to not intentionally mislead consumers about what they're buying, um, and that this market, uh, that U.S. farmers and ranchers are being affected by this deception for consumers. The consumers want to support U.S. produced uh, beef. If they want to buy Argentinian beef or or um, Australian grass-fed beef, they should be able to. They should also know that, you know, they should have uh, the option to do that. Um, and that basically that this is a deception taking place and that the USDA can fix it um, and that they should. And at this point, is there any way for a consumer to know for sure if um, what country uh, the product was grown in. Uh, I mean, like if, if I wanted to make absolutely sure if I was a, you know, USB producer, how would, how would I get that message to consumers? Yeah. Well, I mean, all, all companies can put, uh, additional information on their product if they want to. And, um, there are private certification, uh, systems around grass fed that, um, are very good and very strong and credible. So the American grass fed association, um, does certify grass-fed, um, and there's a number of others. Uh, a Greener World also certifies uh, grass-fed, and so you can start to look for some of those certifications, look for more information. You can ask uh, your supermarket about it. You can ask the company about it. Um, and so, you know, I think that the, that's where it's at, but it really should not be on the consumer to do this. This should, this should be clearly on the label and the company should be required to tell the truth, basically. Well, Ben, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. You've been listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. For more on what you've heard today, including to read uh, Ben's blog, Stop Meat Companies from Rigging the Grass-Fed Market, and to find the link where you can submit your own comments to the USDA, you can visit our website at www.iatp.org. I want to thank Andrew Arisso for editing the podcast today and remind you that you can download Uprooted on Google Play and iTunes and Stitcher. And if you like what you heard, give us a positive rating. Thanks for listening.